0: There was a story told about, um, a man named Jose Rodriguez, who was a bank robber, who lived in Mexico, but he preferred to rob American banks. It was in the wild days of the, of the West, and, and Jose would slip across the border into Texas, rob a few banks, and then flee back into Mexico. And one day it was told a Texas ranger, Caught up with him in a saloon and the ranger pulled out his gun and he threatened to shoot Jose if he didn't immediately tell him where he had hidden all of the, all of the money that he'd stolen. The problem was Jose did not speak English and the ranger didn't speak Spanish so the ranger just kept screaming at him louder and louder, I'm gonna shoot you if you don't tell me where the money's at. Finally, there was this young man who observed what was going on, and he walks over to him, and, and he offered to translate. And, okay, said the ranger, tell him I want to know where all of the money is, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot him. And so the young fellow translated the ranger's words. and Jose said in Spanish, tell him, no, don't shoot. The money is in a dry well at the end of the town. If he removes the bricks... With the moss growing on them, he'll find a million dollars hidden in the well. And when Jose had finished, the ranger said to the young man, What did he say? Oh, said the translator, he dares you to shoot him, he said. <laughs> Sometimes it's not a very good idea to trust strangers, especially when money is involved. Joseph would tell us this morning it's not a very good thing to trust brothers, especially when money is involved. Trusting strangers is something that your mama probably told you whenever you were small, but that can also go for just about anybody, people that are close to us. If you've lived for any length of time, you've likely felt the pain of someone close to you Betraying you or your trust, having been let down. It, it could be a spouse who lets you down. It could be a child who shows no care for your sacrifices or ultimately rebels at some point. It could be a parent. It could be a friend. It could be any number of things. Given, giving someone who has sinned against you another chance can be very hard. It can be almost impossible because there's the violations can be huge and the pain can be deep. And and when someone does you wrong, you questions go through your mind like, um, they hurt me before, do I really want to put myself back in a position where they can hurt me again? Or if you do give them another chance, how much risk should I take? Do I, Do I just go all in on the relationship and pretend like nothing ever happened or... Or do I gradually restore my trust? And, and when? When do I do, do what in the, in the process? When, when someone does you wrong, it's, it's hard to remove history from the relationship, isn't it? The relationship may be there. The commitment may be there. But it's very difficult to remove history from the relationship. It's a very easy thing whenever it gets to that point just to write them off. And that may be the easy thing to do, but it's not the Christian thing to do. Or even what's best for for you. In a time like that, really when you ask the question, you're forced to ask the question, does the gospel that I believe have power even to restore relationships like that? Does the Christ that I follow, does the Bible that I believe, does what I profess, is it enough just for for some type of, of shine on my life on a Sunday or salve for a guilty conscience? Or, or does it really go down to the core of, of where we live, these type human relationships? And while you can't remove people or betrayal from life, you, you can learn to look to God's promises and live free from fear of what other people can do to you. Because that's really one of the things that, that's at stake. Fear that that same person can bring about that same trust. So as I studied Genesis 42 this morning, which is where we're going to be, I I found myself asking the question that I'll ask you. Are you a trusting person? How trusting of a person are you? Maybe I could say it this way. Do you give people another chance? Is it easy for you to give a clean slate if they've evidenced a, a change? Or do you find it's much easier for you to throw them in the proverbial lake of fire, never to to get out again? Are you the kind of person that has learned to trust again? Because life will be filled with hurts and pains from other human beings. Well, we're going to see today how Joseph handles this and learn regardless of which side of the equation you're on, whether you're the person that that violated trust or where you're the person that's trust has been violated, God has some answers. The brothers who perpetrated great wrong upon Joseph come back into his life, and we're going to see where Joseph looks whenever they show up and how he how he reacts. And these brothers just didn't break a little trust. This wasn't... You know, you didn't give me a compliment whenever I, I wanted you to. This wasn't you. You got upset with me. I mean, this, this is at the deepest level. This is this is family. These are brothers. These are brothers who set out to murder him. Whenever he's a seventeen-year-old boy, this is this is older brothers doing this to younger brother. This is the brothers that only stopped from actually shedding his blood because they were convinced that they could get some money for him. These are brothers who watched callously while Joseph screamingly begged as strangers took him away after they had filled their bellies with, with lunch, never to see him again. Now, these same brothers, 20 years later, show up before him. And they show up before him and the circumstances are significantly different, aren't they? They show up in great need, and Joseph is in a great position of authority. Joseph can order this, the immediate death of his brothers. No questions asked. He's in the second position to Pharaoh alone. While Joseph could have very easily taken vengeance, Joseph is a man of faith, and so we're going to see how will he respond. The lesson from Genesis forty two today, we're going to learn about trusting again, examining a person for change, and governing our lives by faith in the gospel, even when opportunity for vengeance is at our hands is in our hands. I would title. Chapter 42, the examination of Joseph's brothers. And there are four scenes, or four parts to it. I'm going to bring them all up for you right now with the verses. And then we're going to walk along through, through Genesis chapter 42 and we'll draw some implications that I think you'll find helpful at the end. Here's the examination of Joseph's brothers. First thing you're going to see is an unchanged household. In verses 1 through 5, Moses will reintroduce us to what's happening in the land of Canaan after being several several chapters only in Egypt. We're going to find an unexpected meeting between Joseph and the brothers. We're going to see an undisclosed examination. Examination is taking place and the brothers do not know what's happening. And then in the end, you're going to see an unconvinced father. Let's look at verse 1, Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there was no grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, indeed, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph did not Send, but I'm sorry, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was great in the land of, of Canaan. And we have not seen or heard from, from the brothers, except for Judah, since chapter 37. Two decades have passed. Twenty years since the, that fateful day in Dothan when they betrayed Joseph, and, and Moses reacquaints us with, with the family. And the question that you really ask yourself in looking at the first five verses is: Has anything changed in twenty years? Let me ask you: Has anything changed in your life in twenty years? Have you been a Christian for twenty years? Has anything changed? Can you see a transformation taking place in your life as you look back over? I mean, one of the things that can be very, very discouraging is if you look at your life in really small bites and you say, what has God done in my life? I really can't see anything that God's done in my life. So you take a bigger swath. Let's go back a year. What's God done in your life in the past year? Well, I can see some things. Well, how encouraging is that? Go back five years. Can you see... God, wow, God's really done some things in in five years. But if you start going back through the process and you don't find any change taking place in your life, from the moment that you said yes to Christ, there's an issue. And we're going to see, has anything changed in 20 years in the life of Jacob and the sons? And the answer is, not much. (laughs) The brothers are still unreliable. Jacob still plays favorites, and the only thing really that's changed is that there's a famine in the land. Look at verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Why are you staring at each other? Why are you standing around? It's, It's an expression of frustration, and he's basically saying, you... You do-less turkeys, there's a famine in the land. You're not doing anything about it. Why are you just standing around looking at each other? That's in the Hebrew, all right? The point is that they have a bad report. They're unreliable. Do you remember the whole issue with Joseph and the brother started with Joseph giving a bad report? And the brothers didn't like the bad report. Joseph gives a bad report to Jacob about his brothers. They didn't like it because it was a correct report, an accurate report. What's the old saying? Throw a rock into the middle of a pack of dogs and the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Well, Joseph hit his brothers with the report. And here you find no better report from the brothers. You also find a new crisis. Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and he said, Why are you standing around looking at each other? Indeed, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy that we may live and not die. This is a major deal. I mean, the family has come to the end of the resources, and someone is going to have to go somewhere and get some some food. And somehow Jacob has learned that there's a stockpile of grain in, in Egypt. And he repeats this knowledge in verse one, from verse one, in verse two, and now he tells it to his sons. I mean, Jacob basically says in frustration, I've heard there's grain in Egypt, get up and go get some for us so we won't die. Now his brothers, why didn't his brothers know about the grain? I mean, they're either ignorant, which would further add to their bad report. Why does the father know and they don't? Or they're pretending. To be ignorant. Now, the irony here is astonishing. They sent Joseph, their brother, to Egypt to die, and now they will die if they stay in Canaan. And they have to take the journey to Egypt in order to live. Now, that's irony for you, isn't it? And you can also find that there's not much changed with Jacob. Look at verse 3. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. I want you to notice the change in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Jacob said to his sons, so in verse 1 they're the sons of Jacob, and verse 3, so Joseph's ten brothers. Now they become the ten brothers. Preparing us for the long me- awaiting meeting between the brothers and Joseph. But look at verse four. Look at how he defines Benjamin. Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said lest some calamity should befall him. Now that's significant whenever you think of the circumstances. First, he's not primarily their brother; he's Joseph's brother, Benjamin. Secondly, you find Jacob doesn't trust them. And thirdly, it's significant because Benjamin was another back in which to to ride a donkey, another set of arms to carry grain back. I mean, you get the whole family, everybody dying, and you're going to send everybody you possibly can to bring back as much as you possibly can. It tells us a lot about Jacob and the brothers and tells us that nothing has changed. Jacob has not learned his lesson. He now has a new favored son. And the brothers are not any more reliable and their father knows it. Nothing's changed in the family. Let's look at the unexpected meeting. Look at verse 6. Narrative turns the page. Now Joseph was governor over the land, that's Egypt, And it was he who sold all of the, sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. This is an unexpected meeting. Now we expect it because we know the story. But I can tell you one thing, Joseph sure didn't expect it. Verse 6 sets up the anticipated meeting. It describes Joseph in two ways. It highlights his authority. Verse 6, Joseph was governor over the land and it was he who sold to all the people. It defines his political position. Joseph was the administrator over the land and his economic position. He was the one who dispensed the provisions. Joseph is the ruler. He's the king and he's the one that gives the bread. And Joseph is second to Pharaoh in absolute authority over the land, and without warning, in walks his ten brothers. I think about this. 20 years, Two decades have gone by. Joseph has no word of what's happening. He hasn't seen his brothers, hadn't heard anything about his brothers. He's been a slave. He's been many years in prison, many years in Pharaoh's court. And one day, everything is going according to plan. We've had the years of plenty and now the years of famine and you're in the middle of that and Joseph is causing everything to prosper and he's hard at work one day, not expecting anything out of the ordinary and there they are. It would be pretty shocking, wouldn't it? Can you imagine what went through his heart at the moment? I mean, the text tries to give us this this idea. Joseph's brothers came down in verse 7. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. The last time he saw the faces of these brothers, he was 17 and he was begging for his life, and he was watching their faces fade in the distance, in the distance, as the caravan was taking him away. Fear in his heart. What would you have done? I had to ask myself that question. And I don't know that I would have responded like Jake, uh, Joseph does. I mean, I'm in absolute authority. Here's my brothers. They don't know who I am, but I know who they are. How would you have responded? Maybe maybe you've experienced it. Maybe someone did something to you horrible at some point in your life and you didn't see them for a long period of time and you know what it feels like, what happened, how the, the coldness went through your veins whenever you first laid... Laid eyes on them after a long time. How do you respond to something like that if you've never experienced Well, look how Joseph responds. Look at verse 7. The brothers show up, they bow before him, which would have been their normal position of homage before a, position, a person of this authority. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke. Roughly, look at verse 9. So Joseph recognized his brothers. It repeats it again, but they didn't recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, I would underline it. He chooses not to reveal himself to his brothers. His brothers bow down, and Joseph remembers the dream. You remember the dream? I mean, here it is. It's being fulfilled. Dream 20 years earlier. The sun, moon, and stars bow before his position of authority, the sheaves before his sheaf, his position as provider. Here they are bowing before the one in political authority, and here they are bowing before the one who would give them them bread. And the dream that God gave 20 years earlier was a promise, but the brothers saw it as a curse. It's interesting. They they rebelled against bowing before their own flesh and blood, but they have no problem bowing before a pagan, at least what they believe is a pagan authority in Egypt, the curse was, I mean, the, the dream was God for telling how He would save Jacob and fulfill His promise to Abraham, but they could only see it on a horizontal level. They couldn't see it on a vertical level. They couldn't see it as a promise of God. All they could, they couldn't get past the fact that Joseph was going to be the one in the position to be the deliverer. They only saw their brother ruling over them, not God providing for them. Is God providing for you? through the hand of someone that you don't care for? Maybe someone who you don't really think that they deserve to be in that position. Can you see God's provision? Can you see the vertical, the promise, and get over the, the horizontal? The brothers only saw their Joseph ruling over them, not God providing, and it looks very different now. In the light of how God has unfolded everything, doesn't it? But what I want you to see is Joseph never forgot it. Joseph never forgot the promise. He never forgot the dream. And that's what has carried him through every single one of those events for the past 20 years. And I also want you to notice that that is the basis for which Joseph does everything that follows. Look at verse 9 again. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed about them and said to them. That is vital. He remembered and said. Verse 9 makes it clear that everything that Joseph does from this point forward, all the testing, all of the the false posturing, all of the calling them of spies, everything that Joseph does is connected to his faith in Yahweh's promise that comes through the dream. It's important because you need to understand, Moses wants you to understand, Joseph is not getting payback, even though he could get payback. He is by faith trusting God's promise that was revealed through the dream. God, you're going to save the line through me? Through me? Okay, Lord. Lord. God's going to save the line. God's going to preserve His promise to Abraham. And here's how He's going to do it. It's the dream He gave me. I didn't ask for the dream. He gave me the dream. But And now Joseph goes back to the dream. And he doesn't get payback. He operates by faith in Yahweh's promise. Now that's power. Someone may have wounded you deeply, but they have no power to affect your faith, do they? You're not a victim if you understand whatever God has brought into your life or whatever He will bring, He will use to either save or sanctify. And that's what God got Joseph through, and that's what will get you through. He works all things together for good, as you know, for those who are called according to His purpose. You see, everything in your life somehow fitting into the purpose of God, that will give you power to go through. If you begin to get bitter toward other people and become a victim about the things that, that have happened, no matter how difficult they are, look to Joseph. Because Joseph responds by faith in the promise that God made to Abraham. Is that how you see betrayal? Through the eyes of promise and Faith. That's how Joseph does it. Let's look at his examination. Verse 9 tells us why Joseph does what what comes next. But verses 10 through 28 shows us what he does. And it's not the worldly way of forgive and forget. (laughs) It's not the worldly way of vengeance, but it's also not the worldly way of, oh, well, you're a Christian, who are you to judge? Just forgive. Yeah, you're supposed to forgive, but in context, there's a lot of other things that goes along with that. He says to them, he remembers in verse 9, He remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. He's saying, You're you're coming to look for the weak spots in our in our defenses. He accuses his brothers of being spies. And we'll repeat the accusation four more times in verse 12, verse 14, verse 20. And it's presented as peppering. They, They go, No, 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 we're not spies. And he just changes it up a little bit. Yes, you are spies. And he just goes on and on and on to rattle them. Picture, you know, those those uh, uh, twenty twenty or Dateline examinations where you see the the teenager in the interrogation room with the with the investigator, and he's got him and he's just peppered him. And that's what Joseph is doing to his brothers. Look at how the brothers respond. Verse ten, they said, "No, my lord." But your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. They repeat, we are honest men, almost every time Joseph says, you're spies. They also repeat it to their father at the end of the journey. We're from the same family. That was true. We're here to get food. That was true. We're honest, men. That's laughable, isn't it? They don't know who they're talking to. Why does Joseph do this? Why does he say you're spies? He knows they're not spies. It's because Joseph hasn't seen his brothers in 20 years and he has no idea what they've been up to and he has no idea if they are the same kind of men that they used to be the last time he saw them. Is his father still alive? He doesn't know. Is Benjamin's brother still around? Had they killed him as well? Are you listening? Trusting again and living by faith in God's promise to keep you doesn't mean there's no examination for change in the person's life that hurt you. It doesn't mean that you just say, Well, God forgave me, so that's it. Now, that may be the attitude of your heart, but the process that you go through to re-engage in a trusting relationship involves examination for change. Before Joseph reveals himself, he puts his brothers to no less than five tests. Look at the first test. The first test is, is Benjamin still alive? Verse 13 Joseph again, verse twelve. No, you've come to see the nakedness of the land, and they said, "Your servants are twelve brothers, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. In fact, the youngest is with our father today, and and one is no more." And Joseph said to them, "It is as I spoke to you, saying you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested." By the life of Pharaoh, he swears an oath by Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. First test, is Benjamin alive? Have these guys changed? He hasn't seen them in 20 years. His first test is, did they do to the other son of Rachel, my brother, Benjamin, the same thing that they did to me because they were jealous of him? Now, the brothers are falling all over themselves. They don't know... It's been a scary situation. They give accurate information, inaccurate information. They're honest men. They repeat the information. and Now they give unsolicited information. And Joseph says, you're going to be tested by you bringing your younger brother here, the one that you just told me about. The word for test has the idea of a sense of determining or finding out the value of someone. Joseph is trying to discern, to test the value of of someone. Not just what they say, but the value of their life. Do their actions. Do the fruit that's coming from their life, evidence, repentance. Because all he hears right now are words. If you've been somebody that has done wrong to somebody else, and you tell them that you have changed and they don't believe you immediately, don't be offended by that. Repent all the more. Because they have no reason to believe your words if your life has been marked by something else. Joseph says, I'll test you. And here's the way I'll test you. He wants to see if they've changed. Can they produce Benjamin? Or will they have to admit they've harmed him as well? Joseph knows that they don't know who he is. So that's the first test. The second test is who will volunteer to go? Verse 16. Look at verse 16. Here's the second test. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison. The rest of you shall be kept in prison. That your words may be tested to see whether there's any truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. I want you to notice that Joseph doesn't tell them who has to go. He doesn't say, you, you go get the brother. He says, send one Among you. And it's a test. He leaves it up to them. He does it for two reasons. He wants to see if there's anybody among them that's trustworthy, that will step forward and volunteer to go. And he also wants to see if the group looks to somebody else. Would someone take responsibility and volunteer to go? And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Is it a long journey? No, it's not a long journey. Whoever steps forward has to go face Jacob. That's to go face Daddy and say, explain why the nine brothers didn't come back and are left in Egypt and convince him to send Benjamin, his favored son. And the father's not going to give up Benjamin to just anybody. He's only going to give up Benjamin to somebody that the father, Jacob, trusts. So who's that going to be? Who's the trustworthy one of the bunch? And he also wants to see, will the group look? You know, the old saying that there's Who do all the eyes in the room turn toward whenever a question is asked? Is there anyone amongst the brothers that all the brothers look to? Is there anybody trusted? Who would the group look to? The likely candidate would be Reuben. He's the eldest. But the last time they listened to Reuben, it was for self-serving reasons. You remember? And then Reuben just falls in with them. And just to show them how serious he is, He gives them three days to think about it. Verse 17. So he put all of them together in prison for three days. I think that they're getting the message that this is a serious situation that they're in. And then he brings the third test. Who will volunteer to stay? Will someone volunteer to go? Who will volunteer to stay? Can they produce Benjamins, the first one? After three days, no one steps forward and no one is looked to as a leader. So Joseph applies another test. Look at verse 18. Joseph said to them the third day, three days have passed, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, like you say you are, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you all, the rest of you, go and carry grain for the famine to your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you will not die. He changes it up. Just like it was changed up for Joseph. Joseph's going to die, we're just going to kill him, and no, 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 we're going to put him in a cistern and we're going to sell him. First, Joseph says, Everybody will stay, and only one will go back and get Benjamin. Now, he turns it around and says, Only one will stay behind and the rest will return. And I want you to notice again that Joseph does not designate who will stay behind. Look at verse 18. Let one of your brothers be confined in the prison house. He again leaves it open-ended. Now think about this. The test is to see if someone in the group will trust the other nine. You get that? If someone volunteers to stay behind in Egypt and lets the other nine go, he's going to trust the other nine. And you wouldn't be dumb enough to do that unless the group had changed. If you were part of a ten-man group that took your brother and was going to kill him and then sold him and then went back and lied to father and killed a goat and put blood on it, would you be the guy who got left behind and send the other nine away and say, come back and get me, guys? Would you do that? Unless you knew that they were trustworthy people and no one volunteers and so Joseph chooses one and that brings the fourth test. Look at verse 24. He can hear them talking. They recount the story of how he screamed as they were abusing him. Verse 24, he turns himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked to them. And now Joseph picks. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. The fourth test is, will someone come back for Simeon? Will someone volunteer? Will someone volunteer to go? Will someone volunteer to stay? Will someone come back for Simeon? Now, this this is a beautiful... I mean, this is brilliant. By requiring one brother to be left behind, Joseph is recreating a similar situation from his own. He takes Simeon, the one brother, and he binds Simeon right in front of all of them, and he leads Simeon away. And now the one, he's recreating a similar situation from his own. The test is now not will you bring Benjamin back, but will you leave Simeon behind? Will you leave the guy here? Will you leave your brother? Nobody volunteered, but what will happen if someone's taken? Look at verse 25. And then Joseph gave the command to fill their sacks with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and give provisions for the journey. He sends them on their way with food that they came for and he releases them. They're now free. They can now escape with their own hides. And they're also in a position to tell their father another lie. Simeon, we don't know what happened to Simeon. I mean, you you know, he went went out to use the bathroom one morning over in the bushes and he's gone. But look, we got the grain and we're here. They can conspire again and tell Jacob, here's the grain, something happened to Simeon and they'll... Will they abandon him just like Simeon? And Joseph turns up the fire with the last test. Look at verse 25 again. Here's the fifth test. Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So Joseph does three things. He fills their grain containers. He gives them provision for the journey. He hides their money further put them to tests. Now they cared nothing for Joseph's life before, except whenever a few silver coins was brought into the picture, right? Ah, we don't like this guy, let's kill him. No, 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 let's make some money off of him. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. And now they have more money than what they could make from Joseph. They have the grain, they have no witnesses, and they have a monetary motive. And Joseph sets all of this up Now, here's the fire. Not only do they have the money, but if they do the right thing, they're going to have to bring Benjamin back and they're going to have to return with the money. And risks Joseph, who is this harsh speaking Egyptian who just locked him up, who just bound their brother, thinking that they stole it. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, they don't know who Joseph is. He's a really, really stern guy. And now they've got to come back to get Simeon, bring Benjamin. And whenever they do, they say, the guy who says we're spies, um, in all ten of our bags, we, uh, we found the money that we were supposed to pay you for the grain. Uh, but we didn't steal it. It was just in there, just appeared. We don't know how it got in there. And returning the money could be very risky. So now they have to return with Benjamin to regain Simeon in order to prove they're honest men, but they'll also have to to return with money that could be used to prove that they're actually dishonest men and all ten of the brothers could be lost, arrested, and put to death. Or they can forsake their brother Simeon, take the money, lie to their father, and save their own skins. It's a pretty good test, isn't it? And they know what type of predicament they're in. One of them goes to feed one of the donkeys. In verse 28, he said to his brother, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. And their hearts melted, failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Talk about a guilty conscience. And verse 29, then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that happened. I have to save the rest for this evening. They returned to the father, recount to him what takes place. And Joseph responds, or Jacob responds in a specific way that, And I'll show you tonight. So what? Man, I, I just I think it's an amazing story. I read Genesis forty two and I don't see all of that detail. Then you begin to unpack it, you see these tests, and how how it's just intricately set up to to examine the brothers and how Joseph responds on the basis of faith and the promise rather than retaliation. But so what? A great Bible story great revelation but how does that help you live your life today i give you three implications that i think you can take from genesis 42 and the first implication is you must place your trust in god and not in a person I think you can walk away from this story saying you must place your trust in God and not in a person. Because that's exactly what Joseph does. The implications of the statement are great. We must place our trust in God and not in a person. That's the basis for why Jesus told Peter he should forgive 490 times. Listen. If our trust is in God, that means the basis for responding to betrayal, the basis for forgiving, the basis for renewing a relationship, the basis for giving another chance is your trust in God, not in the person. Or how many times they failed, or their character, or anything else. And that means that you can be fearless and your trust can be secure. Because God will never let you down. And while the person might, even over and over again, if you look to God, you can find purpose even in their failure. Joseph was remembering God's promise whenever he was led into slavery. He was remembering God's promise whenever he was in Potiphar's house. He was remembering God's promise whenever he was in prison. Joseph was remembering God's promise even whenever he was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, a pagan king. He still names his kids, a Jewish name, a Hebrew name, and calls it the land of his affliction And Joseph is still looking to the promise of God when he has the opportunity for vengeance. He's still trusting in God. And even when Joseph never makes it out of Egypt, he trusts in the promise of God to take his bones in the Exodus some 400 years later. That's power. You're not a victim whenever you trust. You place your trust in God, not in the person. That's what Romans says. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can man do to you? Destroy your body? Throw you in prison? Burn you at the stake? Do horrible things to you? And release you from this body? Into the presence of, of God, who says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I can promise you, He can do a whole lot better job than you ever thought you could in repaying someone. And He's not done. He has not given you the repayment that you deserved. That's what living by faith in the Gospel means. It's freeing. It's seeing that God has, has a hold of your life. Joseph has never, never got bitter, jaded, because his trust was not in what his brothers did, but what God had promised. He knew no matter how many times he put himself at risk, his life was secure if you can get a hold of that, it'll set you free and help you live again. Second one, it's always appropriate to examine a person for change. I think this is where it kind of gets confusing for Christians because they're told God forgave you, Jesus forgave you, so you're supposed to forgive everybody, no questions asked. You are commanded to forgive, but there's no questions asked part that's the issue in the statement. Always appropriate to examine a person for change before you put weight back on that relationship. Now, forgiveness is you pay them back. I forego the right to give you what you deserve. But that has nothing to do with restoring them to a position. It has nothing to do with putting faith, putting trust back in the relationship. Words are cheap. But a changed life is powerfully evident, isn't it? I can remember MacArthur telling of a man that left Grace Church, left his wife, his children. And one day he came back and said, God's forgiven me and I repented, Pastor John, and just wanted to tell you about it. And he was so excited and and John looked at him and said, We'll see. What? No, me. God's forgiven me. I've repented. I've I've come back to the Lord. And and John said, "We'll see." And the man was kind of taken by me. What do you mean? Are you saying you don't forgive me? And John went on to say, "You threw aside your confession to Christ, your commitment to the church. You forsook the vows of your covenant. You forsook the promise you made to your wife and your children, and you expect me to believe your words now." I hope you have. I hope God has worked that in your heart, but we'll see. Spurgeon said, when a man becomes as well known for his repentance as he was for his sin, then he can be restored. Then more weight can be placed on him. Forgiveness is is a choice to forgo the right to pay someone back. Putting weight on someone again requires examination and proof. And that can take time. And God knows the heart, but we don't. And God says, look for the fruit of a changed life to discern the person has changed. Restoration comes when a person's reputation of failure has been overtaken by their reputation for walking in repentance. You will know them by their fruits. Even the Bible says you make a profession of faith. And that profession is proven to be real by whether there's a change that is evident in your life. Let me give you the last one quickly because it's encouraging. Sins of your past don't have to characterize your future. Isn't that a beautiful statement? I didn't go back and do it because it would have taken too much time. But there are so many verses that are past tense in the Bible for sinners, just as a person needs to, who needs to trust you again must place their trust in God, the same God can be trusted with your sin. And whatever you have been, you don't have to be anymore. Isn't that a glorious truth? Your future does not have to be your past. You don't know my past. No, I don't. But by that statement, you don't know my God. Ephesians 1, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in once you once walked, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, and mind. it's all past tense. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were in that condition, He made us alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5:17 gives the whole list. You'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, some of you. Those sins once marked your life. But the sins that once marked your life...